one of the talks and then uh, the questions and discussion uh, afterwards. <coughs> Thank you, Philip, and indeed to all of you for coming, our speakers, our chairs, our delegates, and indulging me in accepting this, inter uh, this invitation today. A special word of thanks also to Julia Blanks in the Courtauld Gallery, uh, because she was the one who let me photograph things on the quiet. So <laughs> that, I shouldn't be recording that now. Um, and also uh, to, to uh, apologise for the hubris of speaking on a Shakespearean English theme, an Edwardian motif, when I'm a fin de siècle French specialist. <laughs> lay, this at the door, uh, lay this at the door of, of my Shakespearean parents and my great-aunt Marion, who took me to fairy plays in Regent's Park at an impressionable age. Now... The anonymous book review that you see on the screen before you addressed A.E. Johnson's The Russian Ballet of 1913, a sumptuous volume, an ideal Christmas present, and a core primary source for the exploration of the English reception of the Ballet Russe. The celebration of their production as a complete artistic whole, a Gesamtkunstwerk, is undercut by an admonition against endangerment of this achievement by the magnificent failure of the creative collaboration of the right. In attempting to examine the impact and dissemination of the ballet's strategies on English productions, I am proposing a comparison of two seasonal rituals rooted in very different terrains witnessed by London's theatre-goers in the volatile moments before the outbreak of the First World War. The Ballet Russe's Rite of Spring and the Savoy Shakespeare's A Midsummer Night's Dream. A claim of direct encounter or transmission could not be substantiated. Nonetheless, I hope to persuade you that the ethos and practices of these two different productions strive to achieve a total work of art, resonating and contrasting with each other in the principles of the collaboration of the two companies, the deployment of intensified simplification in performance uh, to achieve the Gesamtkunstwerk, the deployment of colour and supratemporal effects to create stage decoration rather than pictorialism, the destabilisation of gender and imagining the primitive. Quite a lot for 20 minutes. <laughs> the rich theatre history scholarship about the Savoy dream has focused upon Barker as progenitor, utilising a set of daily mirror still photography as their sole visual evidence. By attending to the wonderful, vibrantly coloured, figurally dynamic costume drawings that I think only I have looked at since 1997 and their donation to the Courtauld in 38, uh, there is still an accession until Julia has took uh, this task upon herself. 
This paper hopes to recuperate the colours, textures and choreography of this Shakespearean total work of art. Similarities in the key protagonists and production methods of the Ballet Russe and the Savoy Shakespeare seasons abound. Without the charismatic personalities of the two producers, Sergei Diaghilev and Harley Granville Barker, the extraordinary constellations of talents needed to create these two famous companies would never have collaborated. Both men encouraged the talents of others' creative skills out with their own compass to achieve a synthesis. They attracted leading lights as well as uncovering new talents. However, their strategies for managing this collaboration reveal very different conceptions of the role of the producer. Diaghilev relied upon an inner circle of elite advisors and patrons to counsel him in acquiring and disposing of his glittering stable of established and young talents, from trusted war horses such as the company manager, General Bezobratsov, forgive me, Russians <laughs> in the room, and designer Leon Barkst, known since youthful Miris Kustva days and his patronesses such as Misia Set and the Comtesse de Graful. To his cults, the dancer-choreographers Vaslav Nijinsky, Leonid Massin, and the young composer Igor Stravinsky. As to the level of control that Diaghilev demanded as a producer, Tamara Kasavina is there to tell you, rather like a Napoleon who had a wonderful gift for details. Granville Barker, in an apprenticeship as an actor, director, playwright under George Bernard Shaw, some even rumoured that he was his natural son, who knows, <laughs> um, perhaps led to Barker's strikingly different principles and practices as a producer. In Barker's prefaces, written to accompany the 1912-14 Savoy Shakespeare seasons and enriched in the 27 publication, he insists upon the collaborative process of production that we aspire to today. Its method should be experimental. More than one mind should be at work, moreover. The text of a play is a score, waiting performance, and the performance and its preparation are almost from the beginning a work of collaboration. A producer may direct the preparation, certainly, but if he only knows how to give orders, he has mistaken his vocation. He had better be a drill sergeant. He might talk to his company when they all meet together the first time to study, as these prefaces pursue, to give a considered opinion of the play, drawing a picture of it in action, providing, in fact, a hypothesis, which mutual study would prove and might partly disprove. Barker significantly likened Shakespeare's verse to a score, invoking the need for the fields of musicality and movement in the creation of character, declaring the chief value of drama, the music of the spoken word. My contention is that the Savoy Productions' performative strategies of embodied diction and characterization provided a point of connection with the score and choreography of the ballet. Lezak. If Stravinsky's music and Nijinsky's choreography intersected with atavistic recollections of Slavic folk music and dance forms, so do the music of Shakespeare's verse afford traces of the sounds of a lost age that Barker enjoins his actors and audience to strive to recapture. Barker also sought to dispense with the problematic traditions of pretty music associated with productions of dream. 18th century productions verged on being operettas, typified by David Garrick's 1763 we're working, entitled The Fairies, with 33 songs. Ludwig Tieck's uh, 1827 revival famously prompted Mendelssohn's lyrical scores. 
And uh, here we have an 1856 full-on pictorialist aging uh, for your delectation or horror. Uh, for the Shakespeare Savoy productions, Barker was persuaded by Cecil Sharp, that great preserver of English folk music, to commission a set of eight songs and dances, deploying old English folk melodies within modern compositions, published as a score, with Sharp's committed introduction arguing for the importance of new compositions in avoiding the trap of antiquarian prettiness. The question of how to locate the costume and set design of the Savoy Dream was equally vexed as uh, to temporality and locality. Barker outlined the core principles of the stage design deployed in the Savoy production. No great drama depends on pageantry. All great drama tends to concentrate upon character, and even so, not upon picturing men as they show themselves to the world, like figures on a stage, but on the hidden man. The Savoy productions rejected the wondrous pictorialist strategies you see on the screen, reaching their apogee, or nadir, depending upon your viewpoint, in Percy Anderson's designs for Sir, Sir Herbert Burbrom Tree's 1900 production, where the realist illusion extended to living grass and rabbits uh, <laughs> underfoot, or who rivaled the player's performance each night to the point that Bottom, paid by Beerbohm Tree himself, was bitten by an aggrieved rabbit who had had the temerity to upstage the great actor-manager. In 1931, Komar Komarzewski, oh, not the Slavist in the house, um, wrote to uh, a paradigmatic account of the stylization of the new theatre, Gordon Craig, George Fuchs, Barker and Wilkinson, I'm adding to the pantheon, in the important years before 1914, asserting that this stylization gives value to the actor by bringing his three-dimensional self into spatial harmony with scenic surroundings. Barker enlisted a young illustrator and theatre designer, the neglected Norman Wilkinson, to develop spatial and sartorial methods through which to vouchsafe actors' reduction to two-dimensional elements within an illusionistic picture. Barker and Wilkinson transformed the spatial relationships of the actors and audience by extending the apron of the stage. They further enhanced this increased proximity by disrupting the proscenium, introducing two downstage side entrance doors reminiscent of the hall screens of the great Elizabethan houses, the environment which most people feel the, the, the sort of wedding feast entertainment that the dream was imagined to be best inhabited. Multiple distinct environments were created with additional backcloths interposed between the main stage and the extended apron. Intense spotlighting heightened the characterization. Beyond these shallow playing spaces on the apron, Barker's, Barker's division of the play into three parts, not the usual five-act structure, was embodied in this initial set of backcloths and then two full, fuller settings for the middle act in the forest and the final act set in Theseus's Athenian palace, conveyed by a set of columns upstage with four divans. Importantly, these are in uh, darkness, so then the mechanical's play becomes the play that we watch, not the actors of the court in the front. But the piece de resistance is Titania's bower. Added to the forest mound was the most arresting confection, a gauzy tent floating down from a floral wreath, carefully identified in Wilkinson's script, 
to be of indigenous English wildflowers, illuminated from within by tendrils of small, dare I say it, fairy lights, electric <laughs> lights. Now, the Savoy Shakespeare designs and decorations embodied the principles of temporal synthesis, which Komisarevsky proposed as the achievement of stylized production strategies. The ideas contained in a play represent the synthesis of a whole period of human thought. So the costume worn should consist of a synthesis of all those years of fashion which make up the ideology of the play. In other words, there should be no exact historical dating on the stage, but a creative synthesis called stylization. Thank you, Thomas. Now, much as in the uh, juxtaposition of modernist and primitive constructs of Slavic dress and landscape designed by Rurik for the Rite of Spring, the Chavoy Shakespeare's dream, stage and costume designs, caught the imagination of the 1914 London public in its destabilisation of time, at once both ancient and modern, much as with the lovely Jeux costume that Katharina has just speaking us to, and indeed Nico this morning, Wilkinson's elegant uh, tunics for the Athenian female lovers resonate with what Nancy Troy and Mary Davis and indeed Lynn have argued are, are the mutual inspiration of the ballet russe, ancient vase painting, and empire line dresses of the Edwardian period. Paul Poiré's fashion that you see there, and this is a surviving costume you can all pay pilgrimage to in the VNA performance galleries, along with the account books for the Savoy production side by side. But also notice the furnishings. Uh, the, the divans are all based on the work of figures like Maurice Dufresne, that, that constructeur debate of the 19-teens in France. Embraced by emancipated Parisiennes and Londoners alike, a garment like the theatre cape, advertised by Liberties on the back of the Savoy Shakespeare programmes, both the threepenny and the sixpence versions, <laughs> underlined the connections between the complex gender roles of the play, the actresses who played them, and indeed the high female proportion of the audience. Uh, the Savoy productions uh, very much favour matinees that allow you to go unchaperoned to attend, and this pertains to my suffragette argument in a moment. Susan Carlson has persuasively argued for the close interconnectedness between the Savoy Shakespeare circle and suffragette agendas. Lila McCarthy, the Irish muse, married Barker between 1906 and 1917 when the cad ran off with an American millionaireess, was committed if uh, a moderately militant member of the cause. Reflected in her choice of roles in contemporary plays, be it Shaw, Barker, or most notably in the great suffragette play by Elizabeth Robbins, Votes for Women, of 1906-7, which made the, the coup de foule of the Cords Theatre season of that year. Suffragette organisations favoured bold colour schemes in the dissemination of their campaign designs. Good graphic designers, we all know that's the way to do it. The Actresses Franchise League, and you see their logo on the screen there, and a, a wonderful uh, chroma colour uh, frontage of the play pictorial, showing the actual colours, notionally, of the Wilkinson Twelfth Night production. The Actresses Franchise League modulated the most widely recognised suffragette trinity of purple for loyalty, white for purity, green for hope, to include a very pank pink, most famously which Lila McCarthy and others amongst the AFL members wore when joining in the 1911 suffragette coronation march. 
vibrant pinks and greens with the startling core notes of Wilkinson's Twelfth Night, as you can see there, not to mention the futurist trees, which rather horrified a lot of people. <laughs> now, these two thematic strands, gender and primitivism, that rear its head in every paper that we've explored, intertwine the imaginations of these two distinct yet cognate productions. As Barker counselled in his 1914 preface that one should do, in drawing this argument to a close, I shall allow the fairies once more to steal the show. The question of how to embody these creatures is the production's greatest challenge to the producer. And this is Barker's wonderful passage. The fairies cannot sound too beautiful. And sounding beautiful, what a lovely choice of words. How should they look? They must not be too startling, but one wishes people wouldn't startle so easily. I won't have them dowdy. Norman Wilkinson and I, he to do and I to carp, so notice Wilkinson's agency being put foremost, have done our best. Oberon and Titania come from the farthest steps of India, says Shakespeare. But Puck, Puck is English folklore. How should the fairies dance? If there is an English way of dancing, God help us, uh, Sharp says there is. Should that not be their way? And what tunes should they sing? English tunes. Now, the Highlander in me box at this claim, but nonetheless, the gendering of the fairy parts had a volatile history that the Savoy productions wrestle with once the entirely male casting of the Elizabethan era had been abandoned. In many 19th century productions, the more numerous fairy attendants were played by little boys and girls. The king of the fairies, Oberons, was almost always played by a woman. Puck always was. Dan uh, the Donald Kerm, Calthrop will look at it in a moment, as far as I know, is the first male Puck. As with the ballet russe gender repositioning of the male dancer... Uh, the, uh, sorry, uh, as with the Ballerus's gender repositioning of the male dancer as a protagonist rather than scaffolding or a prop, the 1914 Savoy production men reclaimed the fairy parts for all genders and ages. Dennis Nelson Terry followed his mother, Julia Nelson Terry, in playing Oberon. Don Donald Calthrop Puck Children intermingled with adult men and children in the vast fairy court of 34 players. Three times in the preface, Barker uses the word travesty to capture Oberon's hermaphrodite hybridity. Fairy beings on their genders came from another world and time, rejoicing in a third sex. The most dramatic costume designs of the production were given to our wondrous fairies. Despite the initial abandoned forays into Samoyed and Orientalist motifs we saw a few slides ago, Wilkinson started, startled the 1914 public with shimmering gilded faces, achieved with gold leaf each performance, which cost a shilling. Bear in mind the company had to uh, keep matinee gold on for evening performance, <laughs> or they paid the shilling fine. <laughs> Uh, these uh, primitive masks and stylized wigs transported from, does India have steps? I don't know. <laughs> uh, these designs embrace the techniques and effects created by Leon Bach's Indo-Chinese uh, designs most closely. 
Significantly, only our friend Puck was not dressed in gold. Instead, a saturated scarlet coat with applique garment and blue uh, touches. Perhaps the most folkloric effects resonant of Rurik's right, if in an English dialect. The fairy's otherworldliness was enhanced but one might arguably term choreography. They made no attempt to hide when mingling with the mortals, another challenge of the play. Instead, their invisibility and thereby their magic was somatically intrinsic. They moved around unseen. Again, Wilkinson's neglected sketches, reminiscent of the Valentin Gross ones my beloved Mike has shown us, are revealing, demonstrating the vibrant motion his costume designs were conceived to withstand as well as the hieratic gestures which were more re widely reproduced in the daily mirror photographs that dominate the scholarship. And I think it's that other element of the performance that is so often lost in its histories. These two rites of spring and midsummer mark the cross-fertilizations between Europe and England, ballet and plays. They also nonetheless differed profoundly as Jacques Rivière admonished, a quotation that seems to rise to each of our minds, savage Slavic origin myths lie at the heart of Stravinsky's Rurik's and Nazinsky's collaborative vision. Barker, Wilkinson and McCarthy in the Savoy production embraced the gentler magic of English folklore, favouring fairy circles and coded colours to suggest folkloric and modern rupture of the order. The Savoy dream ends with a bergamasque. Inspired by Morris dancers, is that the English dance perhaps? <laughs> to mark a wedding feast, not the cathartic fatal dance of a sacrificial virgin. Barker's preface asks us, is Oberon's fairy disposition so strange to us after all? The callousness of Demetrius shocks him. No matter, a little magic will put it right, all very fairy-like and outlandish. There is a hint, though, of a magic wiser than Oberon's, and potent to us, to do us mortals, a good turn after all. The First World War unleashed a rough magic prefigured in the Rite of Spring, rendering it an iconic moment in modern performance culture. But the lyrical, bardic modernism of Midsummer Rites at the Savoy Theatre also had a deep magic one abandons at one's peril. English Highland pantomime goers in the audience, I suspect that a little corner of the British Isles imagination will always, altogether now, I believe in fairies <laughs> and hope that their magic might do we mortals a good turn even now. Thank you.